0: 20 and beginning to read at verse 19 If you're visiting this morning, by the way, my name's Johnny, Um, I'm the minister here, and uh, it's great to have you with us. Uh, After Easter, after our amazing Easter celebration last Sunday, we're beginning a, a new preaching series this morning, and we're kind of entering into the journey, really, of the disciples of Jesus, the friends of Jesus, in the immediate aftermath of his death and resurrection. And we're in this little window between Jesus, being resurrected and the joy of that and then the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost which we celebrate at the beginning of June and in this window in between those two amazing events feels to me like the disciples must have been wondering well what now? What next? You know, we've just witnessed this amazing miracle of his death and his resurrection. And we feel like we're waiting for something because Jesus has promised us that he would send the comforter, the counselor, what we now know as the Holy Spirit. But they're living in this window in between, figuring out what it means now to be believers, what it means to be followers. So we're going to go with them on that journey over the next few Sundays. And then from Pentecost at the beginning of June, we're going to start a series going all the way through the first nine chapters of the book of Acts, which is my favorite book in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the life of the early church. How did they work it all out? What did it mean for them to live as believers? So we're reading this morning from John's Gospel, chapter 20, and from verse 19, and this is what it reads. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw this. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And believe. Thomas said to him, "My Lord and my God." Then Jesus told him, "Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." I wonder if you resonate with that story in any way, and I wonder if, like me, you sometimes have a tendency to be a bit of a sceptic and a bit of a doubter. I have that within me, I think, sometimes. I just look at things and I'm like, hmm, really? Um, And even as a Christian, you know, that skepticism and that doubt is present. And when we come to the story of Thomas that we've just heard, Thomas has that reputation, doesn't he? We still label him Doubting Thomas. I think slightly unfairly, and we'll look at that a bit this morning, But we don't know actually very much about this character of Thomas. He appears three times in the Gospel accounts. The account that we just heard is the third of those. The first is in John chapter 11, and in John chapter 11, Jesus is about to go to Judea to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he tells his disciples, we're going to go on a journey to Judea, and they're a bit nonplussed about it, to be honest, because they had a bit of a hard time last time they were in Judea, so they're not all that keen to go back. And Thomas has this great line in John chapter 11 where he says, Let us go so we may die with him, which is very cheery, I think. Um, A real sort of optimistic outlook on life that Thomas has there. The next time we meet Thomas is in chapter 14 and in chapter 14 Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples that he will die but on the third day he will be resurrected and he will go to be with his father in heaven and he says this to his friends you know the way to the father where I am going. And Thomas, I think, articulates the thoughts of all of those around him. And he looks Jesus square in the face and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, he's blunt at least, isn't he? He's honest. And I think expresses some of the confusion that many of the other disciples are probably feeling, but are too polite to say. And the third instance is the one that we've just read this morning where Jesus has been resurrected bodily, has come back to his disciples and of course Thomas isn't there. He's a bit of a glass half empty sort of a fellow, Thomas, isn't he? But this morning what I hope we can see is that the story of Thomas is not one of despair and pessimism. The story of Thomas is a story of hope. So we remembered last Sunday and we had a huge gathering here on Sunday morning where we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, his victory over sin and death. And we're in this season now as a church, which the Church of England calls Eastertide. If you want to be technical about it, that's what it's called in the Church of England calendar. And it's this window after Easter Sunday where we're all supposed to be in a celebratory mood saying, isn't Jesus wonderful? He's risen, he's resurrected hallelujah and everything's supposed to be really joyful and this was the season that the disciples were in they'd seen Jesus in the flesh he'd appeared to some 500 people over the course of those next few weeks but when he first appeared to the disciples there is a notable absence first time round Thomas isn't there he's not there so I wonder if you've ever wondered where did he go it's like where's Wally? Where's Thomas? Where did he disappear to? Because the Bible doesn't tell us where he disappeared to. I wonder if we might hazard a guess knowing something of Thomas's temperament. Being the kind of slightly melancholy chap that he was, I have a hunch that in the aftermath of the empty tomb, he'd witnessed the death of his friend brutally, His friends had gone to the tomb and found it empty and there was confusion and upset and uncertainty. And I suspect that in the melee of all of that, Thomas had simply gone off by himself. He'd gone for what we might call, you know, alone time. He'd gone to wallow in his sorrows and in his self-pity and to run away from his friends. Maybe he just couldn't face it. He just couldn't face it. I wonder if you identify with that at all, when you've been in a moment of real anguish and all you want to do is run away. And he says this, the disciples report back to Thomas what they've seen. Jesus has appeared. He's been and showed himself to them. And Thomas greets that with utter disbelief. He says, "Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I won't believe it." Isn't that remarkable? Here's a guy who has traveled with Jesus over his three-year ministry, who has seen the dead raised, the blind given their sight, the lepers cured. He has seen demons cast out. He has heard a phenomenal message. And yet the disciples come to him now and say, as he promised, Jesus is risen. And he says, nah, don't buy it. Don't buy it. It begs some big questions for us, I think, in this week after Easter, where we're in this season of joy. We're in this season of celebration that Jesus has risen. But I wonder if we always feel that way. I wonder if we always feel like we're on top of the mountain. We always feel like we're in that place of celebration. The gospel is good news. The gospel is a source of joy. The gospel is a source to shout, hallelujah! Christ is risen. It's a, it's a source for, to be celebratory about. But here's the thing. What do we do with that message of celebration and good news when, as we found out last Sunday morning, to some 250 civilians, many of them Christians, in Sri Lanka are brutally killed at the hands of terrorists on Easter Sunday. How do we square the good news and our cries of celebration with that? I don't know if any of you saw this week a really uh, inspirational and moving speech that the 16-year-old Swedish schoolgirl and climate change activist Greta Thunberg gave to the House of Commons, to a select group of MPs. She spoke as well to the BBC about the impending threat of climate change to this world. In her interview, she said this, Climate change is an emergency It is an existential crisis. And you know, she's right. The reality is if we carry on treating the world as we are doing now, the prospect for us is pretty bleak. So how do we square the good news of Jesus and the gospel with that? And that's the global stuff. When we get personal, what about bereavement? What do we do when we're walking through that valley of the shadow of death where we have lost those that are dear to us, where we are living with the pain and the grief of death? What do we do about sickness when we're li- living with suffering and pain and debilitating illness? Alleluia, Christ is risen. It sort of just rings hollow, doesn't it? Does it not stick in the throat? Does it not just feel a little bit difficult to say squared up with those events i wonder if that's how thomas was feeling this mood of celebration and rejoicing and he's like but i don't feel it and the question maybe i would have for thomas is did he really know who jesus was I wonder if in that time of despair, Thomas took his eyes off the truth of who Jesus truly was. In spite of all he'd seen and heard, he took his eyes momentarily off the truth of who Jesus was and all he could see before him was despair and pain. So let me ask you, where do you go when your world falls apart? Where do you turn? Where do you go when things just get difficult, when the pain sets in? And maybe you identify with that this morning, but maybe you don't. Maybe actually for you the existential crisis is not something that you're personally experiencing, but maybe it's more just the gnawing sense of doubt that time and time again begins to set in. Just those little feelings of, is this really true? Is this really what life's about? You know, those little gnawing feelings of doubt? What do you do when those doubts set in? Where do you turn? Who do you go to? Because, you know, the fault of Thomas was not that he had doubts. It was not that he had confusions. The fault of Thomas was not that he was in pain. These are completely human responses. The fault of Thomas was that in his doubt and in his pain and in his confusion, he ran away. And he ran away from the very place actually where answers and peace and wholeness and healing could be found. There's an enormous irony in this story that when the truth that Thomas is so desperately searching for actually turns up in flesh and blood. Thomas isn't there, he's run off. The one that he's been searching for is standing there waiting for him, and Thomas isn't there. So where do you go when the pain sets in? Some of us, I think, the place we go is to ignore it all. Drown it out. How can we drown it out? Well, we could just drown it out by absorbing ourselves in TV. We could drown it out by drinking. I mean, you add to the list. There's any number of things we could do to just drown out, block out the questions. We could reach for the comfort blanket. We could reach for superstition. We could reach for nice, comforting fairy tales that just say everything's going to be nice and fluffy and okay and we'll just hold on to that because it means we can avoid the truth. We could do what Thomas did and run away. We could even outright reject the good news of Jesus because maybe it's just a bit of a hoax. Or we could run towards Jesus. We could run towards him and we could embrace him. And we could lay our questions and lay our pain and our doubts at his feet. And about a week later, John's gospel records... Jesus does something remarkable and gracious. He gives Thomas his own personal audience with him. He, he comes back again when the disciples are again gathered in the house and he appears to them again, just for Thomas's benefit, I think, and says, Thomas, look, put your hands in my side. See the nail marks in my hand. And Thomas doesn't even need to do it. He just cries out, My Lord and my God. It's a beautiful moment. It's as if the penny just drops for Thomas in that moment, and he realizes truly who Jesus is. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Church tradition, rather than scripture, has uh, some amazing stories about what happened to Thomas later. And um, church tradition has it that the Apostle Thomas took the gospel as far as the shores of India. And that over the course of his lifetime, he made some 17,000 converts to the Christian faith. Um, We can't ever know the extent to which that is historically accurate, but when Roman Catholic missionaries arrived in India many, many years later, they found already existing some small Christian communities that claimed to trace their heritage back to the Apostle Thomas. If that's true, it's not bad for a doubter, is it? Not bad for a doubter. It's a story of hope. So I wonder what you do when the doubt sets in. I wonder where you go. I wonder who you turn to. And I wonder if we might be a church and might be a people that says, we choose to put all of our hope in Jesus. All of our hope. It's a big thing to say, isn't it, that? Uh, The place that I often go on retreat to every year uh, in Wales is called Fowdy Retreat House. And uh, part of the liturgy that we do every morning when we come together to pray is they do something called a hope check. Uh, And the idea is that you sit for a moment in quiet and you examine your own heart and you ask yourself, today, am I choosing to put all my hope in Jesus? I wonder if I might ask you that same question: Are you choosing this morning to put all your hope—not some, not a bit, not even most—but all your hope in Jesus? I wonder if we might pray, and if Johnny and the band could come up, that would be great. I'm going to pray for us, and then as the band leaders, we're going to have a time of praying for one another. But let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that even when we doubt and even when we're in pain and even when life is tough, you never leave us, you never forsake us, you pursue us, you run after us, you give us a personal audience with you because you long for us to place all of our hope in you. May we turn to nothing else and no one else. But may we set all of our hope in you. Why don't we stand together?